When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, during Sleep Number's President's Day sale, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed plus special financing for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See store for details. Maybe he's not the Teflon Don. The lead starts right now. Fraud, lies, and inflated financial values. A new lawsuit from the New York Attorney General against Donald J. Trump and his adult children takes aim at their entire real estate empire, which she says is built on a foundation of fraudulent sand. How Trump's former lawyer, Michael Cohen, put this whole case in motion. Plus, protests ignite in Moscow and beyond as Russians begin to revolt against Putin's war in Ukraine. The escalation by the Russian leader today and President Biden's sharp response. So what does the French president think? He'll be here live with his response. And your money and the cost to borrow, a historic move by the Federal Reserve, raising interest rates yet again in an effort to get inflation under control. And welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start today in our politics lead and the extraordinary new legal trouble for former President Donald Trump. New York Attorney General Letitia James, a Democrat, announced today her office has filed a sweeping lawsuit against Trump, three of his adult children, and the Trump Organization, alleging that they were involved in a decade-long financial scheme that allowed Trump to fraudulently inflate his net worth by billions of dollars, allowing him to leverage the system for his own personal gain at the expense of others. White-collar financial crime is not a victimless crime. When the well-connected break the law to take in more money that they are entitled to, it reduces resources to working people, to regular people, to small businesses, and to tax and all taxpayers. Attorney General James, who campaigned on a promise of going after Donald Trump, is seeking a minimum of a quarter billion dollars from the Trump Organization for what she says are more than 200 examples of false and misleading asset valuations. She's also asking a court to permanently bar Trump and Ivanka, Don Jr., and Eric, his three eldest children, from serving as business officers in the state of New York. As CNN's Jessica Schneider reports for us now, even though these are civil and not criminal charges, the implications from this lawsuit for Trump and his business are potentially significant. Claiming you have money that you do not have does not amount to the art of the deal. It's the art of the steal. New York's Attorney General Letitia James announcing she is suing former President Donald Trump and his three oldest children for lying to lenders and insurers for more than a decade, fraudulently inflating the value of their properties all over the country. They violated several state criminal laws, including 
falsifying business records, issuing false financial statements, insurance fraud, and engaging in a conspiracy to commit each of these state law violations. James is seeking drastic remedies. Her lawsuit demands Trump and his family forfeit the nearly quarter billion dollars they've illegally gained over the years. And she's looking to shut down Trump's business dealings in New York. We are asking the court to, among other things, permanently bar Mr. Trump, Donald Trump Jr., Ivanka Trump, Eric Trump, I'm serving as an officer or director in any corporation or similar similar entity registered and or licensed in New York. New York's attorney general filed this 200-plus page lawsuit after a three-year-long investigation. James also flagging what she says are possible crimes to federal investigators. We are referring those criminal violations that we've uncovered to the United States attorney for the Southern District of New York and the Internal Revenue service. James pointed to Trump's Fifth Avenue apartment as an example of the fraud. Trump allegedly claimed it was 30,000 square feet when it was actually 11,000, and he valued it at 327 million. To this date, no apartment in New York City has ever sold for close to that amount. James says the motive was to entice banks to loan them more money and to allow Trump and his companies to pay less in taxes. Obviously, there's tax fraud going on here, given the massive inflation of these values. Trump has rebuffed James's investigation over the last three years. My company is bigger, stronger, far greater asset. And he lashed out on his Truth Social page shortly after the lawsuit was filed, saying she is a fraud who campaigned on a get Trump platform. But James, a Democrat running for re-election this year, saying Trump cannot dismiss what her office uncovered as some sort of good faith mistake. White collar financial crime is not a victimless crime. Everyday people cannot lie to a bank. And if they did, the government would throw the book at them. Why should this be any different? And the New York Attorney General is also alleging that Trump and his three eldest children lied more than 200 times when it came to those asset evaluations on statements over 10 years. Now, of course, this is a civil case that's been filed in New York State Court. At this point, it's up to other entities like the Manhattan DA's office or the U.S. Attorney's office in Manhattan to determine whether or not criminal charges should be filed. But, Jake, those officials at those offices declined to comment today. All right, Jessica Schneider, thanks so much. CNN's Kara Scannell is live for us from outside the New York Attorney General's office. Kara, explain how Trump's former lawyer, Michael Cohen, set this all in motion. Well, Jake, this all goes back to 2018 when Michael Cohen pleaded guilty to nine federal crimes, including helping former President Donald Trump and of what the authorities alleged with a campaign finance scheme. Now, just before Cohen was reporting to prison in early 2019, he went before Congress and he made a number of allegations. He said that the former president and his company had manipulated the values of their financial statements to obtain better loan rates, better insurance rates, and tax benefits. Let's take a listen to what he told Congress. To your knowledge, did the president ever provide inflated assets to an insurance company? Yes. Who else knows that the president did this? Alan Weisselberg, Ron Lieberman, and Matthew Calamari. And where would the committee find more information on this? Do you think we need to review his financial statements and his tax returns in order to compare them? Yes, and you'd find it at the Trump Org. 
Now, that prompted the New York Attorney General's office to fire off a number of subpoenas, including to the Trump Organization and some of its lenders. They also went on to interview more than 60 people, including the former president and his three adult children. The former president and his son, Eric Trump, declined to answer questions hundreds of times. Jake, but this is um, this is what brought us all to this moment today, the culmination of this investigation that Letitia James, the New York Attorney General, had credited Michael Cohen with. So there's also this parallel criminal investigation being conducted by the district attorney of Manhattan. This is separate and distinct. What do we know about that probe? Right. So this investigation by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office is parallel in nature. It involves a lot of the same sorts of potential allegations. Now, in a criminal case, the burden of proof is much higher than in a than in a civil case. And the Manhattan DA, Alvin Bragg, initially slowed down this investigation when he took over office earlier this year. According to sources, he didn't believe they had enough proof to prove that the former president intentionally was involved with the, the valuations on these properties. Today, we got a strong statement from Bragg. He said... Our criminal investigation concerning former President Donald J. Trump, the Trump Organization, and its leadership is active and ongoing. Jake. All right, Kara Scannell, thank you so much. Let's bring in former U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara of the Southern District of New York, along with former Trump White House Strategic Communications Director Alyssa Farah Griffin. Um, Preet, so let's say there's a viewer out there who thinks, I mean, I've seen this movie before. Donald Trump does something illegal, improper. Somebody says they're going to do something about it, and he escapes. What what do you say to them? Well, this is a civil case, so he's not going to go to prison based on the allegations in this very lengthy, detailed, sprawling, but specific 220-page civil complaint. I think it's going to be very hard to to wiggle out of this, uh, wriggle out of this, because of the specificity of the the, uh, allegations, because of all the evidence that they have. You know, we've seen this before. He doesn't always escape liability. The Trump Foundation was also a target of the attorney general's office in New York. And that was essentially shut down. And there was a debarment of Donald Trump and his children with respect to that case. So this does not mean prison, although we have that matter of the referral we can talk about in a moment. But I think that his ability to do business in the way he's been doing it before, based on these allegations, is probably soon to come to an end. There was also a a, a civil uh, penalty for the Trump University case as well, I guess. So there there sometimes has been uh, recriminations. Yes. Not always. Alyssa, so obviously we know the Trump playbook. He's blasting Letitia James, saying that she's racist, saying that, and this part's accurate, that that she did campaign uh, as somebody who was going to hold Donald Trump accountable. We have seen some people who have been critical of Trump, uh, like uh, former Attorney General Barr, um, now criticize Letitia James in the suit. Do you think it's political? No, although I do think Donald Trump is going to share the video of her campaigning on uh, investigating him repeatedly. And I do think that's going to work with his supporters. Um, What I saw, and I'm not an attorney that was laid out today, was a very credible case that she is making. But taking a step back, it's been a really rough 72 hours for Donald Trump. So in the case of the special master, where he did get this kind of small victory, he got what he had wanted to be able to review the case. But then uh, the, the, the special master comes out and says, yes, if there's no evidence something was declassified, then we're going to consider that you mishandled classified information. He now has this old uh, sexual assault uh, alleged uh, case that's coming forward again, too, under a statute in New York where they're able to revisit it. And now this. I mean, listen, I'm more of a, a political person. I would just say this is an extraordinarily bad week for the former president. He's lashing out because it's getting closer to him and his family. And it's a moment for my party to think, is this something we even want to be associated with? Uh, Letitia James-Preet says that she's referring potential allegations of bank and tax-related 
fraud in her civil case to the IRS and to the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York, where you used to be the big honcho. Uh, How will that office look at this information? Do you think it's possible that he'll face criminal charges if what she's saying is accurate? It's possible. Um, It's very unusual in a civil complaint as opposed to separately to put in a footnote. The first footnote in this complaint, the civil complaint, talks about the the plausibility of there being federal criminal statutes uh, that have been violated and says explicitly in the court filing that she's making a referral to the Southern District of New York. Now, Nothing required the Southern District of New York in the midst of all these reports that we've been hearing over the last year about valuations and about Michael Cohen's testimony. And we, we talked about how that he began the whole journey here. It's possible they've already looked at it or have looked at it some. It's also possible that they've looked at it some, but they don't have all the material because it hasn't been conveyed by Letitia James's office. And, and maybe a combination of having looked at some things, seeing what the application of the statutes are, and looking at all the detailed material, communications, depositions, and everything else— they think there might be a federal criminal statute violated, for example, mail fraud, wire fraud, or bank fraud, but it's, it's too early to tell that. So journalists who cover uh, business uh, and finances have long said that Donald Trump has been lying about how much he's worth, how much his assets are worth, um, and obviously this is, this is something that could humiliate him. And I wonder if you think if the central allegation, if proven in court, will have an effect on his supporters, given how much they admire him for being so successful? Or do you think, okay, he's not worth $6 billion, he's worth $1 billion, who cares? I don't think it's going to break through with his most ardent supporters. I would hope it would more broadly with the party. But think, if we were talking about this off-air, off the number of Trump efforts that he's done that have come crashing down, Trump University, his airline, he's proven time and time again not just to be a failed businessman in many senses, but also somebody who misleads the public or misleads his business partners. People know this. It's all out there. And yet many of his supporters stand by him despite it. So I'm not sure it has a political impact. So, Preet, the uh, New York attorney general is trying to permanently ban some of Trump's companies from ever doing business in New York. If she succeeds, walk us through what that means. It, it, It speaks for itself. It means that certain people cannot serve if she's successful as directors or officers of, of companies that are licensed or do business in New York. And she, by the way, she didn't just say corporations, but similar entities as well. And they simply can't do it. If they try to start a business, Letitia James or someone else can get an injunction um, taking that opportunity and right away from them. By the way, in she, New York, just in New York, she, though, she, right? she doesn't have, she can't prevent him from doing right. business in, in Florida, right. in Mar-a-Lago, California, or any foreign country for that matter. And Alyssa, I want to get uh, your reaction to a comment Attorney General, made, uh, Attorney General James made during her press conference today. Claiming you have money that you do not have does not amount to the art of the deal. It's the art of the steal. What do you think? I think it was actually a powerful message because, again, to the point of his supporters and those who stand by him, they know that if they did anything like this, and of course not on that grand of a scale, but lied about their finances to get a loan, um, that they would have the book thrown at them, as she said. So I actually thought it was a very powerful rhetorical you know, message to just directly say that. That is a big impression out there, yep. though, Preet, and understandably so. You know this better than, than Alyssa and I do, that there does seem to be two kinds of justice, one for incredibly powerful, wealthy people, and one for the rest of America. I bet there are a lot of people out there who think, sure, if this was me, I'd go to jail, but Donald Trump will escape. Yeah, well, that's in some ways true. Uh, some people who have a lot of wealth and uh, resources and staff can separate themselves from the bad conduct that goes on. That was, that's true in organized crime families. It's true in white-collar criminal organizations. 
You know, Donald Trump is a person who never sends an email, who never sends a text. And most of the people who've worked for him, Michael Cohen is an aside in, in an interesting case, uh, Alan Weisselberg is on the opposite side of that, don't flip. They don't give information. You know, the, it's interesting that you began this discussion at the top of the hour talking about Michael Cohen. But for Michael Cohen, who knows how this would have ended up. And but for other people in Trump's orbit, keeping their mouths shut, maybe he wouldn't get away with as much as he gets away with. And here, by the way, I think the, other, the last thing that's important to, to talk about is this is a civil case. So your invocation of the Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination can be used against you. Mm. You can get the jury or the court to make an adverse inference. Donald Trump, in an exercise of great discipline, which he doesn't engage in when there's a microphone in front of him, took the Fifth reportedly 440 times in this exact proceeding, investigation. Alan Weisselberg did the same thing. So if he had nothing to hide in a civil matter, you can't say this in a criminal matter, why is he keeping shush yeah. 440 times? Well, because he has something and to And just hide. really quickly, if I could say, there is a parallel to how he governed as president, where we often, we wouldn't have actually known about many things that happened in the lead up to January 6th and attempts to overturn the election if people didn't speak out. But many people close to him stayed loyal and kept their mouths shut. So it is people like Michael Cohen and whistleblowers who've come forward. Yeah. And many of them are still... Keeping silent. Alyssa Farah Griffin, Preeper Hour, thanks so much. Uh, right now in Russia, anti-war protests and the Kremlin rounding up those who dare to speak out. The arrests we're monitoring as Putin vows to send even more troops to Ukraine. Plus, back on safer soil, Russia's surprise release of two Americans along, among other prisoners of Putin's war in Ukraine. It's a prisoner swap and it's a good news story we'll bring you. Stay with us. Topping our world lead, more than 1,000 people have been detained across Russia in a crackdown on anti-war protests, according to an independent watchdog group. These individuals you see on your screen right now are protesting, knowing that they risk up to 15 years, years in jail for protesting because they oppose Putin's announcement today, calling up 300,000 Russian reservists to go fight in Ukraine. This all follows a string of humiliating defeats in battle for Russia, Putin also raised the specter of nuclear weapons, promising to use, quote, all the means at our disposal if he thinks Russia is under threat. President Biden told world leaders gathered at the United Nations today that Putin is not only trying to extinguish Ukraine's right to exist, he's also taking a torch to the United Nations charter itself. As CNN's Nick Payton Walsh reports for us now, Putin's announcement dramatically raises the stakes and it dashes any slim hope that this war could end anytime soon. Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin. His biggest statement since he began the war, that he still won't call a war, delayed 12 hours till this morning, and perhaps less drastic than feared. But still, a huge move by Vladimir Putin, who until now used this sort of volunteer recruitment process, declaring the first forced mobilisation in Russia, even if it is partial, since World War II. I repeat, we are talking only about partial mobilization. In other words, only military reservists, primarily those who served in the armed forces and have specific military occupational specialities and corresponding experience will be called up. And behind it all, the nuclear threat. Falsely claiming the West had threatened Russia and so Russia would use everything it had to defend its territorial integrity. This is not a bluff. The citizens of Russia can be sure that the territorial integrity of our homeland, our independence and freedom will be ensured. I emphasize this again, with all the means at our disposal. And those who try to blackmail us with nuclear weapons should know that the prevailing winds can turn in their direction. 
The mobilisation is a huge undertaking, analysts said, when they've already failed to supply, equip and effectively deploy their regular army over the past six months. It will not be quick. 300,000 reservists will be called up. I want to say straight away that this work will not be carried out as a one-off, but in a systematic, planned manner, as I've already said. Unease already palpable on Moscow's streets, even if protest was, as usual, muted and suppressed. You always feel worried in moments like this, he said, because you have a wife and kids, and you think about that. I would not want to leave them in case something happens. The big question, amid all the rhetoric and threats of escalation, is does this change matters on the ground? Still, Ukraine pushes forwards despite slight Russian gains around Bakhmut. Russia still struggles to match its status as a nuclear power with real progress and strategy on the ground. Putin's bid to appear strong, perhaps a reminder of how weak this war of choice has left him. The harsh rhetoric, frankly, just raising the stakes for the Kremlin head. He's got a very complex and tense four or five days ahead in which they're going to have to push these fake referenda through freshly occupied territory and essentially at the end of that choose whether or not they embrace all of those areas of Ukraine as, in their mind, part of Russia. But this forced partial mobilisation, they're going to have to move very fast and effectively to get anything like meaningful numbers on the ground to change the pretty awful situation for Russia militarily here, particularly in the Donetsk region. Jake? All right, Nick Payton Walsh in Kramatorsk, Ukraine. Thank you so much. Let's talk right now to Major General Spider Marks. Uh, General, where does Russia need these new forces the most? Yeah, well, what you don't do in in warfare is reinforce failure, which is what the Russians have experienced up in this area. As you can see, Ukrainians have had a good job taking back the Kharkiv region. So what I anticipate is that the Russians would probably try to establish increased defensive positions in this area, primarily because, as you can see, the Ukrainians have some pockets of success here. And what you don't want to have, or the Russians don't want to have, is to have that type of an activity where the Ukrainians could separate these two forces and then either reduce that or reduce that, maintain Kherson, and then potentially take back Crimea. Sorry, that's such a mess. But that's what I think is going to happen, Jake. Does Russia have the capacity to give these uh, new 300,000 reservists the, the resources they will need once, we're on the, once they're on the ground? They probably have the ability to muster the 300,000 to get them minimally prepared. Now, bear in, bear in mind, a good percentage of these soldiers have probably had experience as a result of this fighting that took place. You know, they have the cycle about every April. They bring in new recruits and they get rid of, they purge the other ones out. But they remain in some reserve status. So there may be some currency of experience. There may be the ability to put them, as I said, with some degree of kit to move them forward. But the key ingredient they're missing is leadership, and that's not going to be fixed for the longest time. I mean, that's a generational problem that the Russians have. So Putin has mobilized these forces. In your view, does this make it more or less likely that that he ultimately might actually deploy nuclear weapons? Um, Short answer is less likely. Look, Putin had a series of options. He could have walked through. He could have mobilized, which he chose to do. Could have used a nuke. Might have been able to weaponize fuel and food a little bit more. He chose the mobilization option, which really obviates for the time being the use of nukes. All right, Major General Spider Marks, thanks so much. Biden administration officials say they were expecting Putin's dramatic escalation of ground forces in Ukraine, and they say it's a sign that Putin is struggling 
CNN's Phil Mattingly reports for us now. The president today affirmed the U.S.'s, quote, clear, firm, unwavering support for Ukraine. Let us speak plainly. A permanent member of the United Nations Security Council invaded its neighbor, attempted to erase a sovereign state from the map. At the core of President Biden's U.N. General Assembly address, an explicit and unsparing condemnation of a single country. Russia has shamelessly violated the core tenets of the United Nations Charter. Biden singled out Russia and called out President Vladimir Putin by name in a searing rebuke of its invasion of Ukraine. This war is about extinguishing Ukraine's right to exist as a state, plain and simple, and Ukraine's right to exist as a people. Whoever you are, wherever you live, whatever you believe, that should not, that should make your blood run cold. The remarks coming just hours after Putin's most dramatic escalation yet in the seven-month conflict. A series of moves that drew a direct response from Biden. Just today, President Putin has made overt nuclear threats against Europe and a reckless disregard for the responsibilities of the non-proliferation regime. Now, Russia's calling, calling up more soldiers to join the fight, and the Kremlin is organizing a sham referenda. The remarks delivered at an inflection point for the war, and in Biden's view, the entire world. Putin claims he had to act because Russia was threatened. But no one threatened Russia, and no one other than Russia sought conflict. Biden endorsed the expansion of the U.N. Security Council as he ticked through a series of global challenges, from COVID and climate change to nuclear weapons and hunger. But as he stood before the delegations of 193 nations, Biden closed with a clarion call to the members of one of the pillars of the post-World War II international order. We're not passive witnesses to history. We are the authors of history. We can do this. We have to do it for ourselves and for our future, for humankind. And Jake, despite Putin's announcement coming just a few hours before President Biden's speech, White House officials say there were no major rewrites to his remarks. He met this morning with his top advisors. There were some tweaks emphasizing certain points, but in large part, more than anything else, those announcements only served to emphasize what the president had long planned to give in his remarks today. Jake. All right, Phil Mattingly reporting for us now live from the White House. Thanks so much. Keep it here. In just a few minutes, I'm going to speak live and exclusively with French President Emmanuel Macron about Ukraine, about Putin's escalation and much more that's soon right here on The Lead. Up next, the money lead, the cost to borrow and the historic move to raise interest rates yet again. Stay with us. And our money lead, ouch, the Federal Reserve this afternoon announced a three-quarters of a point increase in interest rates as the Fed is trying to fight inflation. That means the benchmark federal funds rate is now at a range between 3% and 3.25%. That's the highest level since early 2008. We started the year with the rate near zero, so keep that in mind. The news was expected, but the announcement sent the stock markets down. After a brief recovery, the Dow plunged again, finishing 522 points lower. I'm joined now by CNN's Rahel Solomon, along with Richard Quest, who is on Wall Street. And Rahel, as we said, a big rate increase was expected. How will this affect 
consumers. Well, in some ways it already is, right? Anything that has an interest rate that isn't locked in, you're probably going to see that go up, right? I mean, credit card rates are at their highest level since 1995. Mortgage rates, their highest level since 2008. And car loans, their highest level since 2012. That information coming to us from bank rates. So uh, anything that isn't locked in, you're probably going to see that go up. And so you can really start to understand the squeeze that some people are starting to feel already. Because, by the way, as rates have continued to go up, and we learned today they are going to go up even more. Inflation is still at 8%. So you're feeling it on both ends. And this is part of that pain that Jay Powell has said uh, we're likely going to see more of. The Fed chair. um, And what what did uh, the Fed chair say after the announcement? He really doubled down on a lot of the aggressive talk we have heard from him as of late. No sugarcoating here. He said he expects the unemployment rate to go up closer to uh, 4.4% next year. He said he expects economic activity to slow quite a bit. And on recession, Jake, well, he said no one knows whether this process will lead to a recession or, if so, how significant, although critics would say rate (laughs) hikes of this magnitude increase the likelihood of a recession. Richard, I hear you chuckling over there. You're on Wall Street. What is the mood there? Do investors expect a recession? Oh, yes. Reality has arrived. That's why you're seeing the market down 500 points. Uh, They can dance around this as much as you like. But the truth is you've just stomped on the brakes with another three quarters of a percentage point increase. It's an indication of how strong the U.S. economy is that they've had to take such drastic and dramatic action. Uh, Jake, they start, as you and I have talked before, they started late, the Fed. They got behind the curve and this uh, this train will not stop or slow down. However, the, more, the most worrying part of what we've heard today is the various projections, the dot plots, the unemployment forecasts, the economic GDP forecasts. It shows two things. Growth is going to go to virtually zero and unemployment is going to start to rise. Not hugely, but it will rise. And it's cause and effect, Jake. That's exactly what the Fed wants to do. That's the pain Rahel's talking about. And Rahel, we should also note that uh, gas prices rose today for the first time in almost 100 days. They've been falling steadily since hitting the record high back in June. Do you think that this is just a bump in the road or are prices at the pump going to go back up again? Well, it was nice while it lasted, right? Look, AAA warned about this earlier this week. There are a few things we're watching here. On the supply side, of course, the war and whether we see a major hurricane. On the demand side, whether we see a resurgence of COVID, whether we see uh, a recession, as we're talking about with the Fed. That said, we did talk to Mark Zandi, the chief economist of Moody's, in the last hour, and he said he actually expects the gas prices to stabilize around 370 a gallon. Good All right. And Richard, we should note Walmart says it's looking to hire 40,000 temporary mm. or full-time workers for the holiday shopping season. That sounds great until you look back at last year when Walmart was looking to hire 150,000 workers. Why the change? Because interest rates are going up and therefore consumer spending will slow down. And so last year it was going gangbusters, low interest rates, fast growth, So Walmart needed those people. This is the real economy, Jake. Just as much as FedEx told us last week of a slowdown, Walmart is telling us a slowdown. Rates are going up. Things are going to slow down. All right, Richard Quest and Rahel Solomon, thanks so much for that sobering news. Coming up next, what Republican Governor Ron DeSantis is saying about a lawsuit he's facing linked to that political move of moving migrants from Texas to Florida to Martha's Vineyard. Stay with us.
International lead Florida's Republican Governor Ron DeSantis is now facing a class action lawsuit over his decision to fly a group of migrants to Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts. The lawsuit in part says that DeSantis and the state of Florida defrauded vulnerable asylum seekers to advance a political motive. CNN's Ed Lavendera joins us now from outside a migrant resource center in San Antonio. Ed, how is DeSantis responding to the lawsuit? Well, the governor says that uh, they were working on behalf of uh, the migrants and trying to give them a fresh start in Martha's Vineyard. He accuses uh, the people who in the group of uh, migrant advocates who have brought forth this lawsuit of engaging in political theater as well. And and then went on to criticize them for busting uh, the migrants off of Martha's Vineyard within just a couple of days. But everything that the governor has said, Jake, really doesn't address the allegations that many of the migrants have been putting out there since they first arrived at Martha's Vineyard. And these are these allegations uh, that they were promised by uh, several different people here on the ground that they were being offered transportation, employment, housing, and immigration services once they landed and set up uh, in a new part of the country. In fact, the lawsuit goes on to say that once they landed at Martha's Vineyard, they tried contacting uh, the, the various different people who convinced them to get on these flights and that those people wouldn't answer their phones anymore. That's at the heart of uh, this lawsuit and uh, not really something that the governor has addressed fully at this point. And are you hearing anything more uh, about any future flights like this? Well, Governor DeSantis in Florida and Governor Abbott, has all, they both vowed to continue using either flights or buses moving migrants away from uh, Texas and into what they describe as sanctuary areas uh, in, in the country. Uh, there was a talk of a possible flight to Delaware yesterday that we were told by the sheriff here in town that he believes that that was uh, postponed. But it's not exactly clear what is going on since both governors are vowing to continue why exactly these latest flights have been slowed down. So we don't know if it's an issue with the governor's office or with the private company that was contracted uh, to carry out these flights. We just don't know at this point. All right, Ed Levendera reporting in San Antonio, Texas for us. Thank you so much. Coming up next, a welcome surprise. Two Americans among a group of prisoners of Putin's war now free. We've told you their stories before. So what do we know about the release and their journey home? Stay with us. Now my honor to present you with some rare good news in our worldly. The Russians have agreed to free two U.S. veterans who were captured while fighting for Ukraine. Alex Druki and Andy Tynokwin, both from Alabama, have been held by Russian forces since June. They were freed as part of a prisoner swap between the Ukrainians and the Russians. We're joined now by CNN Pentagon correspondent Warren Lieberman. Uh, Warren, tell us about the deal. Where are these freed Americans now? Well, just a short time ago, a few hours ago, in fact, these two Americans, Alexander John Robert Drukey and Andy Wynn, stepped off a plane in Saudi Arabia. It was Saudi Arabia that, behind the scenes, organized this release of not only these POWs, but also five British citizens, a Swedish, Moroccan, and Croatian citizen, as part of a bigger prisoner exchange between Ukraine and Russia. Saudi Arabia working with the U.S. behind the scenes. According to what we know from a spokesperson for the families, the families didn't know about this ahead of time. So as you said, great news and certainly an incredible bit of news for these families. These two men, Alexander John Robert Drukey and Andy Wynn, had gone missing fighting in Ukraine in the Kharkiv region in early June. They'd been in contact with their families when suddenly that contact ceased. Their families feared they'd been captured, and that was confirmed shortly thereafter by the administration. 
And then it was a, the effort of behind the scenes of getting to this point. Now, a couple months later, we see them step off. The uh, a spokesperson for the family says they're in U.S. custody. They'll go through medical checks and a debriefing. And then, of course, presumably at that point, they'll be on their way home after the last few months in Russian custody. Orrin, is there anything we can read into this release as far as it concerns other Americans detained in Russia? There are a couple things we can say, generally speaking, looking at this. First, it's obvious, because the families didn't know about this release ahead of time, that there are efforts ongoing from the Biden administration behind the scenes to make this work, to get to a point where Russia is willing to release U.S. citizens. Of course, two that have been in the news lately a lot, Paul Whelan and Brittany Griner. President Joe Biden met with them just at the end of last week. Families of them, I should say, at the end of last week, bringing them in the first in-person meeting he's had with their loved ones. Those efforts, I think you can say now, are ongoing. There's another point here that's worth making, and you can see that for Russia, there are interests here. It's not just about holding American citizens, but Russia has its own interests in agreeing to a release like this or a release of prisoners like this. The question is, what is their cost? And that's what the administration has to figure out. But at least you see through an exchange like this that the interest is there and there is some room to maneuver here and to hopefully bring Brittany Griner, Paul Whelan home. Orrin, do we have any idea when these two Americans will, will set foot back in the United States? Not sure about that yet, how long the debriefing process could take, or for, for that matter, the medical checks. They've been in, in the custody of the Russians or the pro-Russian so-called Donetsk People's Republic for quite some time now, since early June. So that whole process of going through what I'm sure are a battery of medical checks could take some time. And then the journey itself home at that point, that would be quite quick. But how quickly that goes through the, through the medical and the debriefing process, that in and of itself could take a bit of time. All right. Well, some happy families today, at least. Uh, Oren Lieberman, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, a Republican House candidate who Democrats helped win his primary has some disturbing views about women, specifically whether women should even have the right to vote. The stunning discovery dug up by our K-File team. That's ahead. Plus, just moments ago, French President Emmanuel Macron wrapped up a speech. He is now headed here to our studio. We'll talk about his take on Putin's war, his name being brought up in those Mar-a-Lago search documents, and much more. My exclusive U.S. interview with the President of France. That's coming up. Welcome to the Leave M. Jake Tapper. This hour, it's not a crime to lie to the public about your net worth, but it may be one to lie to your bank. New York's Attorney General is suing Donald Trump and his three oldest children, Ivanka, Eric, and Don Jr., accusing them all of carrying out a massive, multi-billion dollar fraud. Plus, there's a lot of misogyny out there on the campaign trail these days, but wait until you meet the Republican House candidate who had a website arguing that women should not be allowed to vote. He also has some strong opinions about women in the workplace. And leading this hour, President Joe Biden just met with French President Emmanuel Macron at the United Nations in a poll aside. Later this hour, President Macron will be right here in studio, live for an exclusive interview. Biden and Macron's meeting comes just hours after Russian President Vladimir Putin made a stunning declaration. He ordered 300,000 Russian reservists to the front lines in Ukraine, following weeks of of Ukraine's military reclaiming large swaths of territory once occupied by the Russian invaders. In Russia, Putin's order has been met with rare anti-war protests. The Russian government handling dissent the way they usually do detaining at least 1,000 protesters across dozens of city, cities, according to one report. CNN's Matthew Chance reports now on the dramatic change in Russia's failing unprovoked war as Putin's bruised ego puts the world on nuclear watch. 
as long as it stayed on the TV screens, not affecting their daily lives. Many Russians have gone along with Putin's Ukrainian disaster, what he calls his special military operation. But suddenly, in the wake of dramatic military setbacks, all this has become very real. With the Russian leader announcing an immediate call-up of hundreds of thousands of men to bolster his depleted forces. To protect our homeland, its sovereignty and its territorial integrity, to provide safety for people in liberated territories, it is necessary to partially mobilize citizens. This is a partial mobilization, only for reservists and those with military experience. But a partial mobilization that risks fully mobilizing opposition to the war at home. Already monitoring groups say more than a thousand people have been detained across Russia at heavily policed protests. You always feel worried at moments like these, says Denis from Moscow, because you have a wife and kids. I wouldn't want to leave them, he adds. It all comes as occupied areas of Ukraine announce snap referendums on joining the Russian state. For critics, a tiny fig leaf to cover a blatant annexation of Ukrainian land. And an opportunity to halt Ukraine's advancing army by warning its Western backers Russia may use nuclear weapons to defend the motherland even its newest bits. This is not a bluff. Citizens of Russia can be sure our territorial integrity, our independence and freedom will be ensured with all the means at our disposal. And those who try to blackmail us with nuclear weapons should know the prevailing winds can turn in their direction. It's a threat Ukraine, bristling with US and Western arms, has already rejected out of hand. And officials are accusing the Kremlin of throwing more men into the flames of a war it has no chance of winning. But in an already dangerous conflict, Putin's latest turn dramatically raises the stakes. Well, Jake, the, the, it's for Putin that the stakes, though, it, that seem to have been raised the highest, with anti-war, anti-draft protests breaking out in towns and cities across Russia, as we've been reporting. We've just heard from independent monitor groups that in Moscow, some police stations are actually you know, organising the draft of some of the people they're detaining directly into the military you know, after they were lifted off the streets, which you know, seems very harsh, even by the hardline standards of the Russian authorities. Jake. All right, Matthew Chance, thank you so much. As the world grapples with Putin's latest threats back in the United States, President Biden addressed fellow leaders at the United Nations. CNN's Kylie Atwood is just outside the U.N. And Kylie, President Biden pitched reforms to the U.N. Security Council. What would those reforms look like? Two specific things that he touched on in this address to the United Nations today. First of all, when it comes to the number of countries on the U.N. Security Council, there are five permanent members, 15 members in total. He said the United States would like to see that number increase, would like to see countries from Africa and from the Caribbean and Latin America on the Security Council. The other thing that he spoke about was the vetoes that are used in the Security Council. He said that they should only be used in rare 
and extraordinary circumstances. Of course, that is speaking uh, to Russia in some way, shape or form, because they are the country that so often uses that veto power in the Security Council to strike down resolutions. Now, when it comes to, generally speaking, his attacks on Russia because of this Ukraine war, he really tried to establish a set of facts to not desensitize the fact that they have invaded their neighbor. Uh, listen to what he said. Let us speak plainly. A permanent member of the United Nations Security Council invaded its neighbor, attempted to erase a sovereign state from the map. President Putin has made overt nuclear threats against Europe and a reckless disregard for the responsibilities of the non-proliferation regime. Now, when it comes to those nuclear threats, he also called the words that we have heard from President Putin overnight irresponsible threats on the nuclear front. And that is something that, of course, we will continue to watch incredibly closely. Jake. All right. CNN's Kylie Atwood at the United Nations for us. Thank you so much. Let's go now to Ukraine as the country contends with a dramatic escalation from the Russian aggressors. CNN's Ben Wiedemann is on the ground in the eastern Ukrainian city of Kharkiv. Ben, Putin insisted today that his nuclear threats are not a bluff. How are Ukrainian officials reacting to this overt threat? Well, President Zelensky, Jake, said he doesn't believe uh, that threat. One of the members of his staff, the head of his office, uh, described it as nuclear blackmail. And the mayor of Kiev said that Putin has begun the process that will eventually bury him. So the Ukrainians are being somewhat dismissive at this point. Uh, I think uh, they're hoping that this is indeed uh, just bluster from the Russian leader. But uh, I think ordinary Ukrainians are a little more concerned when the Russian leader brings up the possibility of nuclear weapons entering this conflict, Jake. And Ben, you heard massive explosions where you are in Kharkiv last night. Tell us more about that. It wasn't last night, Jake. It was about an hour and a half ago uh, when uh, there was uh, several Russian missiles fired uh, over the city. Several of them were intercepted. One uh, hit a non-residential building. Uh, local authorities say nobody was injured in this incident. But this is the second night in a row where we've seen these uh, missile strikes. And the worry is that because it's going to take the Russians so long to mobilize, equip, train and deploy these 300,000 reservists that President Putin has called for, that in the meantime, the Russians are going to be striking out harder than before, using the kind of long range missiles that they tend uh, to employ in situations like this. The worry is, for instance, that they're going to be uh, targeting civilian infrastructure, which is something they've been doing uh, particularly during uh, this uh, recent offensive in the Kharkiv region. Jake? All right, Ben Wiedemann in Ukraine, thank you so much. Please stay safe. This hour, I sit down for an exclusive live interview with the president of France, Emmanuel Macron, fresh off his meeting with President Biden. That's ahead. Then, is this going to be the case that sticks? Donald Trump and his three oldest children being sued by the New York Attorney General. Plus, Meet the Republican House candidate who wants to or wanted to repeal the 19th Amendment. You know, the one that gave women the right to vote. Stick around. 
In our politics lead, former President Donald Trump, along with three of his adult children, are now facing a sweeping new civil lawsuit from New York Attorney General Letitia James, who alleges fraud, lies, and more than 200 examples of false valuations of Trump's assets, spanning years before he ever entered the Oval Office. CNN's Evan Perez joins us now live with more on this. Evan, walk us through what the New York Attorney General is actually accusing Trump and his kids and his business of here. Well, Jake, uh, according to Letitia James, who is the uh, attorney general for the state of New York, uh, she says that the Trump organization is a giant fraud. She says that uh, over the last 10 years, the organization, uh, Trump and his, uh, his three of his kids, as well as a couple of executives at the company, have been deceiving not only lenders, insurance companies, but also tax authorities. Uh, she says that she is now going after $250 million in ill-gotten gains from uh, this fraud, these 10 years of fraud. Uh, and she's also looking to cancel Trump Organization's uh, corporate certificate operating to, to operate in New York State. Along with that, she's asking uh, a judge to permanently bar Trump, uh, some of his kids, uh, as, as well as a couple of these former executives, from ever serving as, uh, as officers of companies in New York. Uh, this is a, a sweeping uh, lawsuit, uh, Jake. Of course, you know that Letitia James is a Democrat, and of course, the former president and his sons have already taken to social media to accuse her of carrying out a political witch hunt, Jake. We should know this is a, a civil case, uh, not a criminal one, so there would, if anything, be, be fines and penalties, but no jail time. James says she is, however, referring this case to federal prosecutors. What might that mean? Right. Well, the, the, the lawsuit that she filed today, as you pointed out, uh, you know, has a lower burden of proof. Now she's saying that she is uh, she believes that they've also violated uh, criminal laws in the state of New York. And she's referred it to prosecutors at the, the Southern District of New York, the federal prosecutors, as well as the IRS. Listen to her describe what she found. We show that they violated several state criminal laws, including falsifying business records, issuing false financial statements, insurance fraud, and engaging in a conspiracy to commit each of these state law violations. We believe the conduct alleged in this action also violates federal criminal law. Jake, we've reached out to those uh, federal and state uh, prosecutors' offices. Uh, they so far say that they're not commenting. Obviously, the district attorney in Manhattan has an ongoing case, Jake, that they say is active and ongoing, obviously. All right, Evan Perez, thanks so much. Coming up, we're going to explore Donald Trump's relationship with the cult-like conspiracy theory QAnon and how that relationship has evolved, plus our exclusive interview with the president of France, Emmanuel Macron. He's going to join us live, fresh off his meeting with President Biden. Don't go anywhere. In our politics lead, we're going to take a closer look now at what happened during Donald Trump's weekend rally in Ohio, as well as recent posts on his Truth Social account. This all appears to have connections to the deranged QAnon conspiracy. CNN's Donio Sullivan has more on Trump's flirtation with this far-right extremism. Well, I don't know much about the movement other than I understand they like me very much. Former President Trump has long flirted with QAnon, but this illustrated meme he reshared last week with QAnon slogans and a Q on his lapel is one of his most brazen endorsements of the conspiracy theory. Even President Donald J. Trump 
put that on there. A guy wearing a Q-pin, Storm is Upon Us, Patriots are in control. Hosts on this QAnon radio show celebrating. And that is the reason that you are all here, because you know the truth. You all know who Donald Trump really is. You all know who the fight is really about and who the players are that actually want to destroy our country. On Trump's social media platform, QAnon followers saw the president's post as a clear sign he is with them and with QAnon. One post read, at this point, anyone denying that Q is a legit operation affiliated with the Trump administration is in major denial. Another read, at real Donald Trump has over 4 million followers, yet he seeks out Q people to retreat. What we've seen recently from Trump is different from what we've seen in the past. Prior to this, he would say he's heard of these QAnon people. He believes them to be great patriots. Now the message is directly one-to-one. It's no longer um, ambiguous. Well, certainly we are concerned about the QAnon uh, phenomenon. The FBI has warned of the dangers of QAnon and its potential to inspire violence. What we have is a former president, potential candidate for the presidency of the United States, legitimizing what's in essence a cult. QAnon has been associated with bizarre claims about cabals and child sacrifice, but the slogans and symbols of QAnon have now become intertwined with Trump's lies about a stolen election. You know, I go to a lot of Trump rallies. I see a lot of people wearing QAnon t-shirts. It doesn't mean they're all necessarily violent or dangerous, does it? does not. And that's the most difficult law enforcement scenario to deal with because you wanted to identify threats amongst these hundreds, sometimes thousands of people. Trump delivered some of his speech Saturday in Youngstown, Ohio, to a backing track. We are a nation that is no longer respected or listened to around the world. We are a nation that in many ways has become a joke. That music you hear sounds identical to a song associated with QAnon. While it played, the crowd all pointed their fingers in unison toward the sky. The imagery of everybody, their heads bowed with their finger pointed in the air, showing the number one. Um, This is where meme wars are most potent, because for some people, they were seeing that reflected in the QAnon meme, where we go one, we go all. Others were seeing America first be reflected. The Trump team denied the music was a QAnon song. It was played. And to the people who are listening, that's a siren song. Even if it was an accident, it becomes the perception. And it's easy to counter that. Whereas the no, that's not what I meant. No, I do not support this group statement that you would expect from a viable candidate. But Trump has never outright disavowed QAnon. Quite the opposite. He's instead endorsing candidates who have echoed the conspiracy theory like Mark Fincham the Republican candidate for Secretary of State in Arizona. There's a lot of people involved in in a pedophile network and the distribution of children. And unfortunately, there's a whole lot of elected officials that are involved in that. At a fundraiser for Fincham this weekend, a performance of another QAnon song, named after the QAnon slogan, where we go one, we go all. Now, people who are in Trump's orbit, in Trump world, are saying that, look, he's retweeting this stuff, he's reposting this stuff, he's not really giving any thought, he doesn't think about QAnon. Uh, But look, he has been asked multiple times to disavow this dangerous conspiracy. I mean, it's more than a a theory now, it's it's really a movement. Um, And he's refused to do that again and again. 
Tony O'Sullivan, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Also in our politics lead, get this, a congressional candidate supported by Donald Trump, by the way, whose past writings and associations indicate that he is against women voting. We're talking about John Gibbs. You might remember him because with some financial support from the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee with ads, which thought he would be an easier candidate for their Democratic nominee to beat, he defeated Republican Congressman Peter Meyer in this year's Michigan primary. Meyer, of course, voted to impeach Donald Trump. Andrew Kaczynski, the senior editor of CNN's K-File, joins us now. Andrew, what do you found? So Gibbs is a former Trump administration official uh, who in the early 2000s ran this uh, think tank called the Society for the uh, Critique of Feminism. Uh, and it basically argued uh, uh, several things, one of which was that the U.S. has, has greatly suffered from, from women having the right to vote, uh, that women uh, did not possess you know, the necessary uh, qualities to govern, um, and that women should not be allowed to be in the workplace, basically. So on the website you found, he, he gives specific reasons as, he, as to why he thinks women should not have the right to vote? Yeah, so he makes this argument uh, that the 19th Amendment that allowed uh, women to vote, um, he says it's been unequivocally bad for the United States. He says the 19th Amendment led the whole U.S. government to increase in size, um, adding, uh, we conclude that the U.S. has suffered as a result of women's suffrage. Now, on a few other occasions as well, he also praised an organization that was actively trying to uh, repeal the 19th Amendment, uh, his own website uh, that he maintained called this organization Great. Uh, he even wrote them an email that they then posted on their website in the early 2000s that said, you have my support. And his, we and his website was also critical of women in the workplace? Uh, his website was really critical of women in the workplace. It's sort of the arguments... Uh, that, you know, generalized sort of sexism that you might hear. He basically said with women in the workplace, uh, his quote was, you know, men have to basically bend over backwards to avoid uh, offending women. Um, you know, he argued that women in the workplace led to frivolous uh, sexual harassment lawsuits and, you know, men couldn't make as many jokes. How is the Gibbs campaign responding to your reporting? So we reached out to the Gibbs campaign yesterday. Uh, they told us that he made uh, this website to provoke the left uh, and modern day uh, feminists saying this was nothing more than a college student being over the top. They did tell us uh, that he does support now uh, women voting and women working. Interesting. All right, Andrew Kaczynski, thanks so much. Also in our politics lead, Democratic Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib of Michigan facing criticism today from what several of her Jewish colleagues have deemed anti-Semitic comments. Here's what Tlaib, the first Palestinian-American woman to serve in Congress, said at a virtual event yesterday. I want you all to know that among progressives, it has become clear that you cannot claim to hold progressive values, yet back Israel's apartheid government, and we will continue to push back and not accept this idea that you are progressive, progressive except for Philistine any longer. The CEO of the Anti-Defamation League, Jonathan Greenblatt, slammed the comments saying that Israel does not have an apartheid government and said that she should not be imposing a, quote, litmus test in a tweet saying, quote, Tlaib tells American Jews that they need to pass an anti-Zionist litmus test to participate in progressive space. Some of Tlaib's Jewish colleagues in Congress agreed. Florida Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz 
called her comments, quote, outrageous and, quote, nothing short of anti-Semitic. New York Democratic Congressman Jerry Nadler, sometimes called the dean of the informal House Jewish Caucus, tweeted, quote, I fundamentally reject the notion that one cannot support Israel's right to exist as a Jewish and democratic state and be a progressive, unquote. Coming up, French President Emmanuel Macron joins me live for an exclusive interview. We're talking about the Russian invasion of Ukraine, energy prices, global alliances, and much more. Stay with us. In our national lead, Category 4 Hurricane Fiona pulled away from Turks and Caicos in the Bahamas today after it left behind disaster-stricken communities in Puerto Rico, someday, some on their third day without power. And now the giant storm system is making its way up toward the east coast of the United States. Let's bring in Tom Sater, who's at the CNN Weather Center for us. Tom, where's the storm right now? Well, as you mentioned, Jake, it looks like the outer edge, the southern edge, is finally leaving Turks and Caicos. However, this is a Category 4, our first major hurricane of the season. And the eyewall, which was quite ragged, is now well-defined. And if you notice the bright colors of purple here, heavy convection is now uh, encircling this eye. So it's a monster storm. It's going to come very, very close to Bermuda, passing just to the west. But the water temperatures are extremely high and even far to the north. So if you look at the track of the system, even though Bermuda... Bermuda is not in the cone. They're going to feel some effects with this. Tropical storm warnings, hurricane watch there. But this is more concerning. This system plowing into Atlantic Canada uh, this weekend could be the strongest storm in their history. Notice the wave heights here coming very close to Bermuda. These are 50 and 60 foot forecast wave heights. That's massive. And then as it plows into the Canadian Maritimes, Nova Scotia could be hit very hard. If you look at the isobars here, Jake, it really starts to expand. For hundreds of miles, we could have tropical storms force winds. Hundreds of thousands could lose power. As you look at the winds, it is a broad storm and will grow in its uh, size as far as that wind field moving out. Uh, The amount of rainfall could be quite staggering, not just with the power outages and the storm surge, but again, could be one of the strongest in history for this region of Canada. And if you look at some of the more notable ones, they're all since the year 2000, the last one in 2010, Jake. Uh, We're also hearing that the next named storm could be a monster hurricane and the U.S. may be directly in its tracks. What are you seeing on the models? It's just off the coast of South America. It's not even a named system yet. I mean, we didn't even have one named storm in the entire month of August. That hadn't happened in 25 years. But this is the acorn that could become the great oak tree. Computer models taking it through the Caribbean Sea, south of Jamaica. Could it go to the Yucatan of Mexico or could it go to Florida? This is the American model, Jake, and it does create this system into hurricane strength. But it's too far away to exactly say what's going to happen. But the computer models differ. In red is the American off the Yucatan, then sliding north. But the European model puts it right here in Florida. The next, name storm, uh, the next storm's name will be Hermine. That's one to remember. And we're going to be watching it for the next several days. Until then, we've got our own problems here still with Fiona. Jake. All right, Tom Sater, thanks so much. Just ahead, I'm going to sit down with French President Emmanuel Macron, fresh off his meeting with President Biden at the U.N. Stay with us. New body cam video obtained by CNN shows horrifying conditions faced by migrants smuggled into the U.S. Human smuggling has grown into a multi-billion dollar multinational business in recent years as the U.S. sees a jump in migrants from countries such as Venezuela, Nicaragua and Cuba. CNN's Rosa Flores shows us the disturbing reality. This is what human smuggling looks like. Migrants gasping for air in this 2015 case, or a trailer. Can anybody stand up? 
Covered in wailing humans in this 2017 case, 10 people died, authorities say. I don't know which one next. Just, just pick one and I'll help you up. A similar scene unfolded in June when 53 people died in San Antonio in a tractor trailer. That was the worst uh, smuggling uh, disaster in U.S. history. Craig Larrabee is the acting special agent in charge with Homeland Security Investigations in San Antonio, the arm of DHS that investigates human smuggling, and says migrants have more than death to fear. The extortion, the assaults, physical assaults, sexual assaults, um, they're, they're, they're real. Armas, pistolas. He says human smuggling has changed in the last decade, from small family businesses that charged $2,000 per migrant to multinational criminal organizations that charge $10,000 and make billions of dollars a year. So maybe a vehicle had 50 bodies in it years and years ago. They'll put 150 bodies in that vehicle. Larrabee debunks the myth that migrants are usually smuggled into the U.S. on tractor trailers. They're smuggled across the country on foot, that's generally speaking. Once in the U.S., migrants are taken to so-called stash houses. I've seen over 70 people in a little apartment. Hidalgo County Sheriff's Lieutenant Aaron Moreno shows us a stash house they dismantled last year. The windows of the small home? Clues. Smugglers try to hide 37 people inside. This is a tactic. You put aluminum foil and or cardboard so nobody can see inside so they can't see outside. From those stash houses, migrants are packed in travel trailers. You're under arrest for human smuggling? In the trunks of cars, toolboxes, vans, and other vehicles that are sometimes locked shut, like this one last week, that had to be pried open by law enforcement. The drivers sometimes get thousands of dollars per migrant, according to these TikTok videos used by the Mexican cartels and provided to CNN by Texas Department of Public Safety. Why would the cartels pay drivers so much? They're trying to pass this checkpoint right here. There are Border Patrol checkpoints in South Texas that those drivers have to go through, sometimes with human cargo. Smugglers will try to avoid that checkpoint by guiding migrants through this tough terrain. Now, the migrants that can keep up continue north. The ones that can't are left behind, sometimes to die. Migrant deaths so far this year, a record nearly 750, a number already exceeding last year's total of 557. The alleged driver in the deadly June tractor-trailer tragedy in San Antonio apparently went through a checkpoint near Laredo. He has pleaded not guilty. It's unclear if the migrants were already on board. While Larrabee says a lot has changed in the business of human smuggling, one thing is constant. Can you stand? Yes. Come on. Smugglers have no regard for human life. In April, the Biden administration launched an effort to disrupt and dismantle human smuggling organizations. So far, nearly 5,000 individuals have been arrested. As a matter of fact, just last week, eight individuals were arrested, and they allegedly helped smuggle hundreds, if not thousands, of individuals into this country in brutal conditions. Rosa Flores, CNN, El Paso, Texas. Now, thanks to Rosa Flores for that report. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has just addressed the United Nations General Assembly. His message to world leaders as Putin vows to ramp up the war. That's next. 
In our world lead, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is addressing the United Nations General Assembly right now as the world grapples with Putin's latest threats to use nuclear weapons. And the Russian leader calls up hundreds of thousands of more troops. CNN's Kylie Atwood joins us now live from outside the U.N. Kylie, what was President Zelensky's message? Well, listen, what he said is that Ukraine didn't provoke this war. In fact, he pointed to the fact that Ukraine engaged in more than 80 rounds of talks, diplomacy, to try and prevent this war from happening. But now that it is here, now that Russia has invaded and continues to attack Ukraine, he is calling for punishment. Listen to what he said to the United Nations General Assembly virtually in these remarks. A crime has been committed against Ukraine, and we demand just punishment. The crime was committed against our state borders. The crime was committed against the lives of our people. The crime was committed against the dignity of our women and men. The crime was committed against the values that make you and me a community of the United Nations. And Ukraine demands punishment for trying to steal our territory. Punishment for the murders of thousands of people, punishment for tortures and humiliations of women and men, punishment for the catastrophic turbulence that Russia provoked with its illegal war, and not only for us, Ukrainians, but for the whole world. He also called for a special tribunal to punish Russia. And of course, there will be questions as to how other nations respond to the president of Ukraine throwing that idea out there. Does the United States support it? Do other European nations support it? That is one thing that we'll be following up on, Jake. And Zelensky, he's been quite critical of the U.N. in the past. Did he echo any of that sentiment today? He did. He was less explicit than he has been in the past. But one of the things that he was critical of is the fact that Russia is a member of the United Nations Security Council. And because of that, what that allows Russia to do is essentially to veto any resolution that the Security Council is trying to pass. He said that there will be peace, but he juxtaposed that to the fact that Russia is on the Security Council, meaning that he thinks that those two things essentially can't coexist. All right, Kylie Atwood, thank you so much. The perils of live television. We are currently in touch with the team traveling with French President Emmanuel Macron as he tries to get from the east side to the west side. He is, of course, in town, New York City, for the United Nations General Assembly. He just wrapped up his speech. But as with all U.N. annual gatherings, security around the event is tight. And, of course, it's always very difficult to navigate through New York City. Uh, Macron is trying to get here to our studios. We will speak to him for a full interview as soon as he arrives. But I regret to tell you that full conversation will not air today. It will air tomorrow right here on The Lead. Our apologies as President Macron runs a bit late through no fault of his own. Turning to our health lead, uh, many women throughout the U.S. have faced difficult choices in the shifting legal landscape around abortion in the wake of the Supreme Court decision overturning the landmark 1973 Roe v. Wade case. CNN's Elizabeth Cohen reports on one couple who was denied an abortion in Ohio, even though doctors told them the baby would not survive beyond a few hours if they carried the child to term. Tara and Justin George met right out of high school, got married, and this spring they were thrilled to find out they were expecting. Early on, sharing ultrasound pictures with friends and family. 
Yeah, this was like the outfit that Buying onesies for the boy they named Griffin. I'm like, oh, it's a boy. Like, I get to see him. Like, I'm so excited. All I could think of was just hanging out, watching sports, taking him to games, just doing everything a dad would do with his son. But then, at a routine ultrasound halfway through Tara's pregnancy... The woman doing the ultrasound gets up and just kind of leaves the room. Doesn't say anything. That's when Dr. May Winchester, a high-risk pregnancy specialist, came into the room and did her own scan. There was no fluid around the baby. Um, and so right away I knew something absolutely terrible was going on. The baby had severe heart defects and... The baby had complete kidney failure. Could that baby survive after birth? This was a uniformly fatal diagnosis for this baby. Tara and Justin's dreams shattered. The chances of him being stillborn was extremely high. They said if he did live, the chances of him living would maybe only be a few hours. Tara could stay pregnant, but she was at high risk for blood clots and possibly preeclampsia, two potentially deadly complications. When you have a baby that will never make it, um, we have to really think hard about if we want to put Tara's life at risk for that. Tara and Justin decided to terminate the pregnancy. In Ohio, where the Georges live, an anti-abortion law took effect this summer after the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. It allows for abortion to prevent the death of the mother or when there's a serious risk of the substantial and irreversible impairment of a major bodily function. How sick does a woman have to be to be protected by Ohio law? Well, I think one of the problems is that it's unclear how sick she has to be. Attorney Jesse Hill has been fighting Ohio's anti-abortion laws in court. The authors of these laws say that the laws protect the life of the mother, do they? They do not. These laws absolutely put patients at risk far more than they protect them. Dr. Winchester tried to get an abortion in Ohio for Tara, but was denied. I felt a lot of anger and um, disappointment. When I had to call Tara and tell her that we couldn't do it, that was really difficult. The closest place Tara could go to get an abortion was Michigan. She went there last month. She had to spend two days there. It was really scary. I feel for all the other women out there that are going to be going through it as well. It's just horrible. Now all they have are memories. Yeah, this is the bracelet my friend got me. It says, I loved you your whole life. I'll miss you for the rest of mine. Pain of their loss on top of the pain of being sent away to get the care they needed. One thing that, one thing that factored into Justin and Tara's incredibly difficult decision was they thought about how their son would suffer being born without lungs that function properly, without kidneys that function, with a heart that had severe uh, defects. They thought, how would he suffer after he were born? Jake? There, there was a change in Ohio law after the abortion. Can you tell us about that? That's right. So last week, a judge put a 14-day stay on Ohio's strict anti-abortion law. So now women are allowed to have abortions. Um, we'll see what happens after that. We're now in the middle of that 14-day stay. We'll see what happens after. Jake? All right, Elizabeth Cohen, thank you so much. Emotional testimony today in the second civil damages trial against far-right conspiracy theorist Alex Jones. Jones, including from the father of Sandy Hook shooting victim, six-year-old Benjamin Wheeler. Uh, he called Jones's hoax claims, quote, incredibly disorienting. CNN's Bryn Gingrass joins us. That story now live. Bryn, Alex Jones spoke outside court today. What did he have to say? 
Yeah, Jake, well, he's good about speaking outside of court, yet he hasn't yet appeared in court while this emotional testimony has been going on. I've been listening to court for the last several weeks. He's never been inside, but he has spoken to reporters outside twice, and today was no different, basically saying he won't go inside because he's filming his show and also because he doesn't want to be the target of sort of this emotional testimony that's happening inside the courtroom, referencing this previous uh, case that happened in Texas just, uh, just last month. I want you to hear more about why he says he won't appear in court and the, you know, what we could expect to hear when he eventually does take a stand in this case. I'm not the Sandy Hook man. I've already said I was sorry years and years ago. I've already tried to make restitution. We gave the court all the discovery. They defaulted us because they found there wasn't any evidence of premeditated master plans with Sandy Hook and all this garbage. I think that the families are a victim of the process of these lawyers manipulating them and controlling them to go after the Second Amendment and the First Amendment. Now, again, Alex Jones has not yet been on the stand. We are anticipating that to happen sometime tomorrow, Jake, and certainly uh, we expect to hear more of sort of what he is saying. But again, he has not been inside the courtroom to face these parents yet uh, in this trial. Bryn, what else did we hear from the families today? Oh, Jake, I mean, it was incredibly emotional. There were three family members that came to the stand today. Two of them had children that died, and one was the daughter of the principal who was killed. And basically, they just described their loved ones, described what life was like when they had Alex Jones and his followers say their deaths were a hoax. And then talk about just the fear and safety that they continue to live in as he continues to spread this conspiracy online, uh, even now almost a decade after this happened. All right, Bryn Gingras, thank you so much. Our out-of-this-world lead is still stuck on the ground, but maybe not for much longer. During a test today, NASA engineers again detected hydrogen leaks on their new moon rocket. One cropped up at the same point in the countdown that earlier leaks forced NASA to postpone the rocket's launch a few weeks ago. Engineers were able to come up with a fix, but a second leak turned up before the test ended. NASA says all of today's objectives were met. They're going to analyze today's data before deciding whether to try launching this mission next week. Also in our out-of-this-world lead, NASA astronaut Frank Rubio and two cosmonauts arrived at the International Space Station after being launched earlier today. It's Rubio's first trip into space, and his mission is scheduled to last six months. He's a medical doctor, born in California. His mother lives in El Salvador. It's the first time since the Ukraine invasion that a NASA astronaut has traveled into space with a Russian crew, although another U.S. astronaut came home with a Russian crew. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to The Lead. Whence you get your podcasts, our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. We'll bring you that Macron interview tomorrow. Thanks so much. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.